But most people in America and the cities of Europe and contemporary Europe and contemporary America don't know what's a zither. I mean, ask your friends back at the dorm or on the street, uh, what do you think of zithers? And um, they'll look at you kind of funny. And they'll say, did you say slither? Like a snake? Um, are, are you talking about zippers, maybe? Um, yeah, right. Well, zither doesn't mean anything. Now, culturally, it's the wrong word to use. Technically, it may be the right word to use, but the thing is, with the chin in Chinese, we're talking about an instrument that is ancient, that was played for many, many centuries, that was highly respected, that was considered the most musical, the most important of instruments. And none of that comes up in the reader's mind if you call it a zither. There's only one instrument that has been around in European music for anything like the time that the chin has been around in Chinese music and has been as highly respected, and that was the lute that was played by the great musicians of medieval times in Europe, played in the palaces of kings, used as an instrument for the great poetry and the great music of its time. If you talk about lutes, you will bring out the right cultural association. And so even though it's really a zither, and I know it's a zither, and some scholars might know it's a zither, I'm going to call it a lute because that way it will make sense. It will bring up the right cultural feeling. It will bring up the right era of, 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 of ancientness and value and respect and honored place in society that the lute brought up in European music, that accompanied the lute in European music. So it's better to call it a lute, so I'm going to call it a lute. So he translated this as lute. Now, luckily, I think luckily, nobody applied that same reasoning to, say, Chinese philosophers and religious figures. So nobody ever said, well, you know, nobody's going to understand Confucius. I think I'll just call him Moses um, because he was the lawgiver um, for uh, Chinese um, believers. Um, and so we'll just, we'll just call him Moses. Or um, uh, nobody ever said, well, uh, nobody's going to understand Buddha, so I think we'll just call him Jesus. Um, and, um, um, you know, we'll um, talk about all these things that Jesus um, did um, in uh, India and, and, uh, and, and how people worship Jesus in um, chi Chinese, um, Jesus' temples. Um, but it's the same logic, right? I mean, you use the familiar um, um, one to, um, to, to replace the, um, 
uh, the one that foreigners don't know about. And what do you think you're communicating by that? Um, seems to me a little bit ambiguous and a little, uh, a little bit misleading in some ways. Uh, maybe there's some resemblances between Buddha and Jesus. Um, but, uh, you know, there's really a couple of differences, too. And there are really a couple of differences between the chin and a lute. So I'm going to ask you guys now to use your intelligence and not believe everything you read. And when you read those Chinese writings in that assigned reading, and you see the word lut, you can understand it as zither, but just imagine you're reading the word chin, and it doesn't mean this. It means a different kind of instrument that you play to make music. And I'll show you a chin tomorrow. In the meantime, we still have to imagine this half tube zither. We've got this one right in front of us. And in reading about the piano and how it brought death to darkest Africa, we see something different from this rather large, solid object that I don't know if it looks to you like it's completely innocent or if it looks like it's morally neutral. But in fact, we, we, we find um, that it's, it's, it's kind of an unsavory character that has been associated with some pretty awful things historically and culturally. We read about in those articles the little um, towns in Connecticut with the factories by the river that had representatives of in Africa leading expeditions into the jungle to shoot as many elephants as they could to bring back ivory to create these white piano keys. Elephants by the hundreds, ultimately by the thousands. And I can't completely blame the piano. The title of the article is a little misleading because when you read the article, you found out that it wasn't just the piano that was devouring all those dead elephants, but it was also pool halls consuming dead elephants for ivory to make pool balls out of. So if you've ever enjoyed a game of pool, you should feel really, really guilty because that is what pool did to elephants in Africa. Well, between them, pool and the piano, the evil PNP just about led to the extinction of the elephant in West Africa because that was the closest and the easiest source of elephant ivory. Ecological devastation like you could only imagine in the 21st century when elephants are protected and they're still fighting against extinction of the elephant in many places in the world, but at that time, wholesale slaughter was the norm. And elephant killing was 
and industry, and people didn't even have to poach because laws were so um, so weak and 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 so unevenly applied that they were virtually non-existent. And so this was a robber baron industry that was legal only in the sense that people had not yet realized how uh, awful it was and what devastating effects it would have. And um, when people did realize that, of course, then laws went into effect to curtail that industry, but not before it was almost too late in many parts of Africa. Elephant populations were decimated and there was horrendous ecological devastation. Um, but then, that's not even the worst of it because as you also read in that article, elephant hunting expeditions <clears throat> went out with skilled hunters with their elephant guns to kill elephants. But once you kill an elephant, you need somebody besides a skilled hunter. You need a lot of people to carry the ivory tusks back out of the jungle and down to the sea coast, to the cities and the sea parts where you can load those tusks on the boat and ship them off to the piano factory in the US. And so people, of course, could have hired carriers to do that, and sometimes they did, but also, as you found out in the article, they <clears throat> sometimes managed to make a double profit by not using hired labor, but slaves that they would capture from the same areas in Africa that they, that they killed the elephants from. So you get a double whammy hitting parts of Africa with the elephants mostly killed off and whole villages emptied to take slaves and carry the ivory back to the um, coast and then the elephant, the ivory, ivory hunters would of course sell the ivory to traders to ship it, ship it off to the US and they would sell their slaves to traders too. And you even hear about atrocities like one, one, one mentioned in the article of, uh, of, uh, of a young mother stolen um, as a slave and made to carry ivory, but she was having trouble doing that and um, carrying her baby at the same time. So the ivory traders just simply took the baby and killed it um, so that she wouldn't have to worry about the baby anymore. Awful stuff. Why do I even touch this thing? Yeah. Sneer, but you know, I guess we believe in rehabilitation, and that's what's happened to the piano because it has been rehabilitated. Um, and today, you no longer use ivory to make these white keys, they're made out of plastic. So that's one for the elephants, and um, partly because of that, and partly. Um, because of other limitations on the ivory trade, elephants are making a very slow comeback in at least some places in Africa. Still, you've got a while left 
before you get out of the bad rap that you've that you've gotten for those elephants and those slaves, Mr. Piano. And we'll see. But they don't tell us this in music school, you know. And um, um, if you heard about it anywhere outside outside of music school, let me know. I want to hear um, where that dark side of the hist history of the piano and the history of Western music is um, is being told, because it's um, been a very well kept secret in many circles. Musical instruments are a part of their way of life. That is the way of life of the people who make and use those musical instruments. And that way of life can include beautiful music. Beautiful music created and performed by wonderful musicians with great skills and great feeling and sensitivity, but also it can include participation in social and economic systems that um, tie into uh, very complex things that underlie and support the music on top of an economic structure that may be ultimately destructive, as in the ecological destructiveness of the hunting for piano keys. And that only lasted about 100 years, because uh, before the 19th century, before the piano became popular, you had the, uh, the much kinder and gentler harpsichord that just used wooden keys instead of ivory keys. Such a sweet instrument, the harpsichord. You really would love a harpsichord if you met one. Um, but then the piano came in. The piano, because it was so much a part of the industrial age. And if you could come up here and look at this piano, you would find that in this whole immense black box, there is a gigantic cast metal frame that is heavy. It weighs several hundred pounds, and it is big and thick. It stretches all the way from here to here and all the way from here down to that end of the piano. It's shaped kind of like a harp, and I don't know if you've ever seen the Marx Brothers movie where the Marx Brothers destroy a piano and Harpo picks up the frame and starts playing on it as if it were a harp, but that's how, that's how it looks. It's got um, <clears throat> hundreds of metal uh, bolts in here, tuning pegs, that the metal strings are wrapped around. And you have to use a special kind of uh, socket wrench on these um, to tighten up these strings because you have to put a lot of torque on them. You have to put a lot of foot-pounds of pressure on each and every string. And remember, there are hundreds of these metal strings inside of here so that by the time you've tightened all of them, you've tensed it up and harnessed so much potential energy in the tension of those strings and so and so many hundreds and maybe thousands of 
foot-pounds that if the whole thing ever let go at once, it would probably blow a huge hole in the floor of this room and people would say we had been hit by a terrorist attack of some kind. Scary thing. It has all of the power and all of the mechanical sophistication of the age of steam locomotives. Um, and it is part of the industrial stress on bigness and power and behemothness that came out of the 19th century. Steam locomotives, steam ships, big clunky machines and big heavy pianos. And you know, it's, it's still big and clunky and heavy. It's hard to move around as a couple of you found out um, who helped move it the other day. And um, uh, part of the reason is that all of this black casing here is tropical hardwood. And so again, we're, uh, we're not quite out of the woods ecologically with our instrument here because each one of these is using wood from um, several large old growth trees um, in its manufacture and contributing to a deforestation problem in um, tropical areas. Still, you can make beautiful music on it. Music is an ambiguous thing. Music can bring feelings of love, of profound joy, of deep, complex appreciations and anxieties and all kinds of other emotions. Um, and it can be associated with the best in life and the worst in life, with the uh, um, creation of human relationships, with the murder of kidnapped slave children. Almost, almost anything can be tied in with music. And that is why we have, of course, in music cultures, because music is so complexly interwoven with all aspects of human, human life in so many different ways in different times and places that we want to take a broad look at music and how it fits in to people's lives. Now, it doesn't, doesn't matter that the Chinese chin is also a zither, like this piano is a zither, because although they're physically rather similar to each other, in fact, the, um, um, the, the cultural meanings and the, the cultural implications of these two instruments are very, very different. So let's talk then about the Chinese zither, the ch chin. Chin is one of several Chinese zithers. There are quite a few different kinds of zithers in Asia and particularly in East Asia. And the chin is the second oldest and the most highly respected of all of them. The oldest Chinese zither, which, oh, 
was popular for a while. Um, about 3,000 years ago, roughly, was called the say the set around well before 2000 BC well we're still not doing well on these are we well that's good and the chin starts becoming popular um, around that time, around 2000 BC. So um, it's a fair, fairly old instrument then, about 4,000 years um, old, give or, give or take 1,000 years, um, which is a little bit older by 1,000 years or so than, than anything in Western music. And for that reason, people often refer to it as Guchin, or the ancient Chin, <clears throat> as a sign of respect. The nice part about the piano in 19th century Europe and America was that the great majority of musicians who played the piano were um, young ladies, and I, I, I use that term um, deliberately in imitation of, of the language that was used about those musicians, young ladies, not young women, um, but ladies who were educated and refined and um, uh, well-behaved and all of the stuff that Victorian um, Europeans wanted and Americans wanted, wanted, wanted um, the daughters of the, of the middle class and upper class families to be, and they would play the piano in the family parlor or living room. Um, for which, of course, you had to have a family that was rich enough to be able to afford um, um, a uh, living room, much less a piano to put, to put in it, and to pay for the lessons that the young lady would have to take. But this was a, a kind of a universal ideal among upper and middle class um, families in the um, 19th century. And... Um, uh, the um, um, the uh, the daughter who played the piano was quote unquote an ornament to the family, and um, also was um, some somebody who um, uh, was dis was displaying one one of the things that made her attractive uh, as a partner for marriage to equally refined and desirable um, young men. So this was who played the instrument mostly. 
in America and Europe. This zither. How about the Chinese zither? The chin. No young ladies. Not through the same time period we're talking about, the 19th century. Um, not for the hundreds of years before that. It was um, just about always played by men and not particularly young men either. Although you could start young or fairly young learning how to play the chin, but um, um, you wouldn't be considered very good um, until you had done it for a while. And um, um, if you were a chin player, you also had other things on your mind because it took a special kind of person to play the chin. The chin was not as democratic an instrument as the piano. The piano was sort of half democratic. I mean, it was um, played mostly by middle class people, and that's half democratic. It wasn't played very much by poor people, uh, although there were some who played it. But the chin was played only by members of the Chinese government, the traditional Chinese government, for most of its history. And that seems pretty odd. How many instruments can you think of that are played just about only by members of the US government? What does Barack Obama play? Well, what, what does uh, um, Joe Biden play? What does, uh, um, um, and Orrin Hatch play? Um, you know, what does, uh, do any of those guys play anything? Well, some, sometimes they do. Um, and um, 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 what's his name? Bill Clinton played the, played the saxophone. Um, and um, occasionally you um, find a, a, a US government official who um, played the, uh, um, who, who plays something or other. Harry Truman played the piano, actually. But um, his daughter um, was the piano player in the family. See, it's the, it's the nice young lady who really is the, um, the piano player. Not so in the Chinese government. Anybody who wanted to be considered for a high official would be most likely to be a player of the chin. And why was that? Well, because the Chinese had a very special form of government, unlike any other in the world um, um, up till um, uh, the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, because in practically every other government, I mean, above, above the level of tribal governments, when you get into complex governments with um, 
um, with bureaucracies, with departments, with taxes, with um, uh, so forth, so forth, and so on. The um, uh, the complicated sorts of national government. Practically every other such government in the world, except for China, operated on the "who are you related to" principle, so that everybody would be the council of the king would be sitting together in London or Paris or somewhere and um, they would say, oh, we need a, a new secretary of the treasury. Well, how about uh, Lord Elgin's idiot son? Um, he can't do anything else, but uh, uh, we could put him, put him in as secretary of the treasury and then um, get somebody who can actually add and subtract to help him. Um, and, um, um, you know, and we'll make um, 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 Lord Humphrey, Humphrey, Humphrey Bottoms' um, um, cowardly nephew, the Secretary of War, um, and um, so forth and so on. And so the general, general plan for forming a government, in other words, was that you would fill up your government with useless relatives of the rich and powerful. And I know some, some of you are thinking, so what's different now? Um, but uh, it has changed a lot. And one of the reasons it's changed a lot is because the world finally realized what China did. What China did was not to pick the people with the best connections, the people with the best families, the people with the richest inheritance, and so on, to run their government. Rather, the Chinese sent out recruiters all over the country, away from the capital city, outside the Beltline, into the cities and towns, into the villages and farms, all over the country. And those recruiters were told, look for the smartest, the brightest, the most hardworking, and ambitious children that you, that you can find. Um, and it was only boys that they looked for for this, because uh, like um, other traditional go governments, it, would, it um, was a um, um, patriarchally dominated kind, kind of thing. But they did a very good job looking for smart young boys. And they would bring those boys into the provincial capitals and into the cities and start educated them. And the ones who proved to be the smartest and the best were sent to Beijing, to the court of the emperor, where they were given the best education that money could buy and the best training. And they were, when they graduated, given jobs in the government with high responsibilities and those who discharged the responsibilities best would be promoted to better and more powerful jobs. So this was all voluntary, it was all competitive, and it was something new that the world hadn't seen before. It was a civil service. <clears throat> 
where you recruit the best, the smartest, the hardest working people, you test them on the job, and you promote them according to their performance to higher and higher positions. And when European ambassadors visited the emperor's court of China, they were amazed not to, not to find a government run by rich idiots, but rather a government run by smart, hardworking, extremely capable people, something that the rest of the world did not have, but which everybody was quick to see the value of. And so contact with China led very quickly to the world's governments transforming themselves into governments run by secret services. Um, excuse me, secret services. Civil services, thank you. Um, and I'll try, I'll, try, I'll try to get back to speaking English tomorrow. So we'll see you then. Today was Monday, the 5th of October.